Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15 is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. I think in it, Jesus opens up to us the heart of God. The Father's heart, which is His heart as well, but also the heart that I think He wants us to enter into and have ourselves. We're of the body of Christ. It is the heart of the body, and it's to be our heart as well. He speaks of how God loves us, why He loves us, what that love looks like as He pours it out. Jesus was with the scribes and the Pharisees. So while they had come, he was also with the sinners and the tax collectors. And the Pharisees were a little bit repelled by the fact that he was spending so much time with those they deemed the unworthy, those who were not so righteous as they themselves. The tax collectors we doubtless all have in mind. They were those who worked for the Romans collecting the taxes, so they were seen as collaborators. Many of them were quite wealthy, and they made their money off the backs of their own people. I mean, the fees that they charged beyond, some of them just the bare minimum. Others, well, again, were quite wealthy. Remember Zacchaeus, when he was converted, said that if he had defrauded anyone, he would pay several times what he had taken. I, I always make the note that my dad worked for many years in national revenue, and uh, some of his colleagues, I know, took offense every time they heard the tax collectors attacked in Scripture. Well, tongue-in-cheek, I guess. The sinners, though. The sinners were a bit of a catch-all group for the Pharisees and the scribes. It really covered all of those who, because of their circumstances, perhaps their employment, perhaps their willful disobedience, but often just the state of their lives could not be as righteous as the scribes and the Pharisees in obeying all the laws and commandments, the same scrupulous obedience. And it wasn't just to the laws that were on the books, God's laws, but also all of the additional ones, the commandments that came out of the keepers and the teachers of the law. And at their best, those were those things that they would call building of the fence around the law, you know, a wise thing in its place. If you're going to avoid crossing over a line that you shouldn't cross, well, there are a number of steps along the line that would keep you from getting close. I often say to people, if you're going to try and avoid going through the gate, going the other side of the fence, it's better not to be walking along the fence, not to be drawing too near and looking over to the other side. And in some of our lives, there are a number of things we ought to be doing to avoid getting too close. So that's a positive sense, but Jesus warned them that they were building up all these extra levels of burdens. They couldn't keep all of them most of the time. How could the common people? So many were grouped in there as sinners. Although it's interesting to note that at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says... I assure you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. That's something I'll come back to, thinking about, well, how is that possible? What does he have in mind? Why are you spending your time with them? 
They don't deserve it. Why are you not with us? Why are you not with the righteous ones? And Jesus, in short, answers them in twofold fashion. Are not those who are lost, those who are struggling, those who are bound up with sin and separation from God, are not they the ones who really need to hear the gospel, who need to really hear God's calling on their lives? But the other thing that runs all the way through is they are God's own. These are ones who were created in his image and likeness. Does not a man naturally care for what is his own? What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if one of them went missing, one of them was lost, would not leave the ninety-nine to go and look for it? And when he'd found it, would he not throw it up on his shoulders? Maybe that means he didn't really want to come home yet. But and bring it home, and would there not be great rejoicing? Now, maybe if you're incredibly wealthy, you don't miss one out of a hundred. But if they're your sheep, do you not know them? Do you not miss them? John 10, Jesus talks about the difference between the good shepherd and the hired man, the hireling, saying that the, you know, the hireling who doesn't own the sheep, they're not his own, he just works for the owner. When he sees the wolf coming, he runs away. The good shepherd, in contrast, lays down his life for the sheep. Which one of you, if you had those sheep and it's one of your own who goes missing, would not go and look for it? I've read commentators who say that he was talking about something that was sort of an outlandish thing, the idea that you would care that way, but that's not how it sets up. He says, which of you wouldn't do this? Okay, mothers and fathers, if one of your children is missing, which one of you would say, oh, well, I've got three or four more Maybe I've got nine or ten more. What's one to go off? No, it's your child. It's your sheep. You go to find that one. And there is rejoicing when the one is found. Well, some of that rejoicing is what he points to in heaven. The woman who's got ten silver coins and she loses one, does she not turn her house upside down to find it? Now, on the one hand, it might be, as some have suggested, one of a set of ten, you know, some kind of a necklace or a headdress where things are not complete without that one. But frankly, if you do not have a lot of money, one silver coin is a big deal to lose. Things are not complete, but you're impoverished by that. You look for it. It's your coin. It belongs to you. And when you find it, there is rejoicing. I often say to people in the confessional, you know, you may feel when you're coming like God is saying, oh, here he is again. (laughs) You know, here she goes again, the same sins. Uh, Is God not getting tired? No, no, no. God delights every time we turn and come to him. We are his own. He wants Nothing more than to see us reconciled with him. He did not create us for death, for sin, but for life. Life eternal with him. There is rejoicing in heaven every time you turn and really repent of your sins. Every time you come, even when you're saying, Lord, I don't know that I'm not going to fall again. Lord, I'm afraid of that. But you come looking for his grace and you come saying, I am sorry. 
I really am sorry. He delights in that. Well, these are his own. The Pharisees are supposed to be the teachers of the law, the scribes. They know the scriptures. They're supposed to know the heart of the Father. And more, they're shepherds then over the people. They're teachers. They ought to share that heart. The next chapter, he really goes after them on that one. You're so concerned about how you look before others. But the things of, of men are often abominations in the sight of God. The last of the parables, he does come back. It's a little bit more pointed in their direction. What about a father who loses a son? We often call the story the prodigal son because of his prodigious wasting of the inheritance he's been given. But some have suggested we ought to call it the prodigal father because of the extravagance of his blessing upon the son when he returns home the lost son, the prodigal father, the son who wants his inheritance. We're not told why the sheep went astray. That's one of the mysteries in that one. Your sheep is lost. It's an animal, for heaven's sake. Uh, It might have willfully got on off its own way. It might have been led astray. We're not really told. It's It's gone off. But we know of the son. He chooses to go that way. His willfulness, his greed, his arrogance of youth. And that's not a put down of all young people by any means. But that sense that, Father, you're just sitting on all this money. (laughs) You're not enjoying it. I want to go out and spend it. He heads off and away. The Father gives it to him. And I think of the times that God gives us what we demand. We beg him. We demand these things. We want to press on in our sins, and sometimes he just lets us go and leaves us to the consequences. He never lets go of us. He never forgets us. He never stops to love us. He never turns away from us, though we've turned from him. The delightful part of that story that when the son turns and he heads towards home, the father sees him while he's yet in the distance, and every indication that this is a father who has been longing and praying and hoping and watching. And there's that marvelous scene of him running out to his son. He doesn't care what the neighbors think of him hiking up his robes and running out, looking very undignified as he embraces his son and brings him home. The boy turns, and there's that lovely line, When he came to himself, when he came to his right mind, there's the demoniac that Jesus heals, drives out the legion of demons. And we're told that afterwards people saw him clothed and in his right mind. There's this awareness suddenly that the way he's been living is not who he really is. He comes home to himself and he sees that his home is at his father's house. But you notice that with that comes the sense that he has no claim anymore. He's squandered his inheritance. He has no right to be a son in the home, but he knows that that's where he needs to be. And as he comes, he comes as one who is saying, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've given all of that away. 
take me as one of your servants. Let me wash floors. Let me uh, shovel out the stable. Or worse, the the chicken house. Um, I've been feeding pigs. I can... Well, I know you don't have pigs because this is a good Jewish family. There are no pigs there. That's a little more the indignity that was there. But take me as your servant. And the father hasn't waited for any of that. He knows what's going on in the heart while he's still a distance off. He knows the boy is coming homeward. He runs out before there's a word spoken. He knows the penitence in the heart. He doesn't upbraid him. The father does not upbraid us when we come home. If you imagine for a moment when you turn to the Lord in your sins that his first response is to condemn you in them and to say, you know, you get that sorted out and then you come back to me. Or how dare you come when you've done these things? No, he sees you in your brokenness. He loves you. Jesus went to the cross. What does Paul say? While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. What he does offer instead is, here's the boy who has nothing, and he knows he's got nothing, and the father gives him robes and rings, shoes for his feet, food for his, his belly to, to fill him up, to build him up again, to nourish him in the things of the household, pours out the extravagance of blessing. We ought to hear St. Paul's later words about being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You know, put off the old man, put on Christ. It's his grace, it's his righteousness. And then there's the elder brother. And he's outside and he's called in. And he's not so sure he wants to come in. The younger brother was giving his excuses why he couldn't come. The elder brother refuses to come in. When he came to himself, the younger turned for home, the elder refuses to come to himself. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of familiar ground in this one. If there's any of us here who does not identify a little with the elder brother, at least at moments, we're probably not being honest with ourselves. How dare he come home? Father, I've done everything you expected of me. Where have I ever let you down? Where have I never not done what you told me to do? But then this son of yours comes home. Not his brother anymore. Do you hear the echo of the garden where after the fall, Adam says to the Lord, this woman that you made, that you put here, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's not my wife, it's not my beloved, it's not bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's this woman you made. There's the distancing. And the father says to his elder son, Son, why did you do the things you've been doing? I thought you did them because you were my son. Because you were part of the household. Because this is what we do. How is it that you've been with me all this time and you don't share my heart? Um, this is your brother who's come home. Why are we not rejoicing in that? He was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but he's found. This isn't just the way I love him, but a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. 
What does it mean to have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, the righteousness of the Pharisees is doing these things to impress other people, to score their points with God, doing the righteous deeds in order that they're a means to an end. The righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes is the righteousness that does these things because they're the heart of God, because they're the right things to do in his sight, because we are true sons and daughters. They're the things that we do by grace, not by how good we are, not by how capable we are of ourselves, but because we come as we are. We've given ourselves to him. He's clothed us in his righteousness, and we live out of that. Two last thoughts that go with this today. Uh, One is, I didn't want to let our lesson go by today. Moses, the people are committing the sin with the golden calf. Moses is yet up the mountain. He's about to come down and discover that, and God paves the way a little bit. Moses is going to want to throttle the people. He wants nothing to do with them in their sin. He would have destroyed them. But God goes through this interesting exercise with Moses. He says, the people have sinned, Moses. Step aside, let me destroy them, and I'll put you in their place. I'll make a new nation of you. And Moses, kind of like brothers and sisters, you who have siblings, Perhaps know what it is when you fight all the time with your sibling, but then somebody else picks on that person. And you say, you can't do that to my brother, (laughs) to my sister. Moses is on his face before God saying, Lord, you can't do this. Well, for one thing, it what does this do with your name before the nations? It's for the glory of God, but he also stands with his people. He becomes the intercessor in that moment. And then when he goes down the mountain and he finds how awful it is, he smashes the Ten Commandments. And I say is ready to throttle them, but he doesn't. He comes back and he actually intercedes for them before God. The Father's heart gets to work on him. He's frustrated with the people, but he learns a great deal about God's mercy. Back to those final words with the Pharisees. When we get into that pharisaical mindset, when we find it so hard to love and to forgive and to pour out in our own lives that grace and mercy of God, we need to come back to the cross. We need to remember, like St. Paul remembered, what it was to meet him on the Damascus Road, what it was to realize that apart from Christ, he had no life, that everything he had for me to live is Christ. I think of the words of amazing grace, which of course features that line, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It begins with amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, uh, I believe John Newton originally wrote a worm like me. It's toned down to a wretch like me, and I've heard modern versions that want to bring it down to a soul like me. My younger brother had a friend whose first name was Reg. And whenever Reg would sing that song, he would sing, Who Saved a Reg Like Me? And I think we need to be 
where that's personal, where we know the grace of God poured out for us, where we come back to the cross, let go of our lives knowing that we have nothing that we do not first receive from Him by that grace, by His mercy, that our home is with Him, that He loves us because we are His own. Sin separates us, takes us into death, but Jesus Christ, through His death and resurrection, through His ascension to the Father's side, has raised us up and opened to us that way that is to our eternal home. I have gone to prepare a place for you that I may come back and take you to be with me, that where I am you may be also. Again, in the Mass, we come. We come to the foot of the cross. We come as those who let go of our lives to Him, who meet the risen Lord and Savior as He comes to us here to pour out His life into us, to give us that which apart from grace we cannot have, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Paul put it, The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or as we know it better, and we'll hear it again in just a few minutes, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.